Hello and welcome to Stairway to ATJ, the CBA podcast that deals with all things access to justice. We see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they are in need of a legal remedy. I'm Anthony Pereira, Program Coordinator for Metro Volunteer Lawyers, which is the pro bono arm of the Denver Bar Association. And I'm Mia Kotnick, the Access to Justice Program Manager for the Colorado Bar Association. So today we're going to be discussing pro se parties in family law cases. We will explore why there are so many pro se parties in family law cases, how being pro se impacts a person's ability to access justice, and the trends are guessy regarding what kind of individuals tend to find themselves proceeding pro se. So this episode of Stairway to ATJ will be a bit different because we're going to be sharing what various local access justice committees around the state have planned for pro bono week here in October. After hearing what the local ATJ committees have planned, we're going to have a great interview with Melissa Walter, a Sherlock in the first JD, and James Gartz, an attorney from James Gartz Law. And we're going to hear about their experiences with pro se parties in family law cases. So this month on the Pro Bono Corner, we are going to share what various judicial districts and the local access to justice committees are going to be doing to celebrate Pro Bono Week. Each year, there is a national celebration of pro bono that is typically held the last week of October. Local communities are encouraged to provide pro bono services, provide trainings to lawyers, and to celebrate the lawyers in their community who volunteer their time um, to those who cannot afford an attorney. First, we're going to start with the Legal Resource Day in the El Paso Combined Courts. This event was planned as a collaboration of the 4th JD, Colorado Legal Services, the Access to Justice Committee of the 4th JD, and it's aimed at individuals in the Pikes Peaks region. This year's event is going to be held online. Their website is going to go live at 9 a.m. on October 29th, and their website is justicecentersos.org slash legalresourceday. You'll be able to find that in the description as well. During their Legal Resource Day, attendees can access virtual workshops on topics including evictions, small claims, protection orders, and more. There's also an Ask a Lawyer event, which attendees can call in for a free 20-minute consult with an attorney, and that's going to be between 9 a.m. and 2 p.m. And there's going to be plenty of helpful links and resources. We wish uh, the 4th JD and El Paso Combined Courts a very successful Legal Resource Day. I would also like to share what the 18th Judicial District is doing for Legal Resource Day. The 18th, which includes Arapahoe, Douglas, Albert, and Lincoln Counties, will be hosting a virtual Legal Resource Day. This event is hosted by the Colorado Judicial Institute, Colorado Courts, and the 18th Judicial District Access to Justice Committee. Their event will be held via WebEx on October 26th from 9 to noon. During this event, representatives from Child Support Services, Metro Volunteer Lawyers, and Colorado Legal Services will be available via WebEx to provide information about community resources available to pro se litigants. Self-represented litigant coordinators, or Sherlock's, will also be available to answer questions about forms and resources. Family court facilitators will be available to answer questions about family court procedures. And they will have a limited number of free virtual mediation sessions with volunteer mediators. 
You do need to pre-register for those sessions and have a current case. While they are not looking for volunteers for this event, they do hope to resume their Ask an Attorney Clinic when, pro when COVID protocols allow. If you are interested in volunteering, please send an email to 18selfhelp.judicial.state.co.us and let them know you're interested in volunteering for the Ask a Lawyer Clinic once it resumes. We are also sending our best to the 18th and hope you have a fabulous legal resource day. There's also going to be a big event in Denver. Um, it, that one also is on October 26th, and they're going to have uh, sessions from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. on various topics, adoptions, power of attorney and living will, protection orders, estate planning, small claims, trial and hearing preparation, domestic relations 101, which is family law, and landlord-tenant issues. Each of those sessions are an hour long. Plus, you'll have parenting classes offered um, starting at 9 a.m., and those will be both English and Spanish. Um, similar to the 18th JD, they are going to have free mediations throughout the day um, that you can register for. And they also have an Ask a Lawyer that's going on all day where attorneys will answer questions about probate or county court civil, um, landlord-tenant small claims, and family law. Um, volunteers are still needed for that, um, especially in the afternoon from 1 to 3 p.m. So if you'd like to volunteer, you can email virginia at denbar.org. If you know someone that's interested in participating in any of these sessions or the parenting classes, uh, you can call 303 606-2442 or email Denver District Self-Help at judicial.state.co.us. Happy Pro Bono Week. Melissa Walter has been a Sherlock or self-represented litigant coordinator for seven years. And before that, she worked as a paralegal for Jefferson County Attorney's Office for 14 years. She started working for Jefferson County Attorney's Office while she was in high school and continued to work there while she was in college. She has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and criminology from Metropolitan State College of Denver. Melissa, what inspired you to study criminal justice and criminology? Um, that's a good question. Uh, my parents have always really been into, you know, the, the criminal justice system and watching trials and stuff back when court TV was really big. So it's always just been something I've liked and been interested in. And um, I guess to, to spare you the details, we had something happen to my little sister when she was nine and we had to go through the court system, through the criminal, you know, and we both had to mm -hmm. testify and everything. And uh, it didn't turn out the way that we thought it was going to. And so it just kind of like, I don't know, was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, to want to just be involved somehow with the criminal justice system and helping people, victims especially, but people in general. Thank you for joining us today, Melissa. We also have with us uh, James Gartz. Uh, James is a family law attorney and mediator in Denver, but his practice has spanned the entire state of Colorado at some point or another. Um, he was first licensed to practice law in Tennessee. Um, that was in 2002. And he has now 18, over 18 years of experience. Um, he manages a caseload of clientele with divorce and custody disputes or simply simply agreements that they want to make clear and more importantly, uh, enforceable and understood. Uh, James excels in client contact and education with a goal in mind 
of obtaining the best possible outcome during a difficult family situation. He graduated from Colorado College in 1999, obtained his law degree in 2002 from Sanford University Cumberland School of Law, and that's in Birmingham, Alabama. He began his legal career in his hometown of Memphis and moved back to Colorado in 2006, eventually starting his own firm, Gartz Law LLC. Um, he's an active member and an active volunteer with Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, and his further interests uh, seeking access to justice, equality, through voluntary dispute resolution and vigorous litigation when necessary. He's a husband, a father, and an avid bicyclist. You can find him on Peloton under the username uh, Mountain Biker Rufus. Um, so James, I mentioned volunteering, but I didn't mention MVL specifically. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and say hi to everyone, but also kind of explain your role with uh, MVL. Um, I, uh, I'm a member of the Denver Bar Association and uh, Metro Volunteer Lawyers has a advisory committee. And I've been on that committee for a number of years and uh, I have climbed the ladder to chairperson this year. Uh, and so I facilitate the meetings that we have um, and I get to do things like this, podcasts to talk about uh, you know, uh, self-represented uh, litigants by pro se parties. Awesome, thank you guys both for joining us today. Um, we always like to ask, start an episode by asking our guests, what does access to justice mean to them? We're trying to think of a short and sensitive too, because I know it means different things to different people. So we'll begin with you, Melissa. What does access to justice mean to you? Um, essentially, it's just the ability to get anybody, whether it doesn't matter their background, their race, their economic status, just get them all the same access to the legal system in order to further their interests or their um, their goals, whatever they need. How about you, James? It's uh, access to justice is commonly used, I think, in um, reference to people who may not be able to afford a lawyer, um, but I kind of consider it a broader concept. Uh, it's everybody who wants equity through agreements or court proceedings. Um, you know, I, you know, application of the law to the facts for everybody in a in a relatively even way. I mean, it's it's extremely hard. You have different people who have different problems, and you know, they come to the the courts in a different perspective or expectation, and the outcome hopefully will be similar, no matter like um, she said, you know, background or or um, you know socioeconomic circumstances. It's, it, I think it's an enormous term, uh, but typically it's applied to low-income folks. So, Melissa, before we get started, um, we learned in your intro that you're a Sherlock or a self-represented litigant coordinator. What does that mean? So, essentially what we do is we help people who don't have attorneys um, figure out forms and procedures and resources for what they need to do. So, they can come in and say, oh, I want to sue my neighbor for $5,000. We'll explain what that is, how to do it, give them resources, give them rules and that kind of thing. Um, we're not allowed to provide legal advice. So if someone come in, comes in and says, I have this situation, what should I do? That's that keyword there that makes you know that that's not, that's legal advice. So you'd have to explain like basic instructions, basic rules, basic resources, that kind of thing. And Melissa, you say come in, where are you guys located? Um, we are in the main courthouse in Jefferson County. Um, we. We're actually in a temporary office right now. Um, normally we're on the same side as the courts, but our office is really tiny. 
and with COVID and everything, and just the simple amount of people we see is just not a good idea. So we're looking for a space. Awesome. So James, not all of our listeners are family law practitioners. Um, so in the quickest way you can, uh, can you describe a typical family law case? So we get all on the same footing and same ground. Yeah. No. I, okay. So family law, I guess in the domestic courts is child custody and divorce. Uh, I think uh, I hate to be the every term is so broad guy, but yeah, family law is an enormous term. It could be probate, frankly. It could mm-hmm. be mental health issues that need to be resolved. And it's not what I do. I do custody, uh, dissolution of marriage. You know, if we take a full dissolution of marriage with children, it's you try to get a co-petition prepared. If they don't want to, you file it on one side and then you file it with the court and and get uh, an initial status conference and there's financial disclosures to do. And you know, once you go to that status conference, you probably have to schedule mediation. And if the parties can't resolve that, uh, then you're probably doing a whole another set of disclosures and preparing for trial. And that whole process could take three months. It could take six months. It could take 18 months if people are having a problematic case. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's, it's reference to COVID. It's been a little slower. It's been a little more erratic. Problems have been bigger. The problems have been more significant. People have been in a less good mood and access to documents is much more difficult. And so I think everybody's nodding on the other end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see you guys. <laughs> I guess the podcast folks can't see us, but we're all kind of agreeing that, yeah, this is kind of a bonkers time for quote unquote family law, what that is. And so, Melissa, from your perspective, when someone comes to you with a family law issue, what what types of activities might you help with? Usually it's just the basic, you know, people come in and say, I, I want to file for a divorce or, or custody, which we call allocation of parental responsibilities or APR for short. They just come in usually just because they don't know how, where to start, don't know what to do. So we'll give them a starting packet. And then um, if they need, if they have domestic violence issues, we'll re- refer them to several places like... Porchlight or um, Colorado Legal Services will show them on the internet where they can get the forms because you can get all the forms for free on the Colorado Judicial Branch website. So we'll refer them to that. But if they're if it's easier for them, they can also purchase the rest of all the forms they're going to need at the domestic window for a small fee. And then we'll guide them through the process. We'll review their forms after they've completed them to make sure they're filled out correctly. Um, we will even help them after the fact. So after they've gotten their divorce or their orders, and then they want to modify two years down the road, we'll help them figure out what forms and stuff when that happens. So can you break down, you mentioned this earlier, but break down the your role as far as the distinction between legal advice and just legal information um, and elaborate a little bit more on that. We can present options. So if someone comes in and says, oh, I'm, I'm a grandma and I can't decide if I want to file guardianship or custody, you know, we'll explain the difference between the two and, and how that works. And then they would have to decide for themselves. But if they asked us, so which one should I do? That should kind of implies like a strategy or something, which we, we wouldn't be able to answer that question for them. So we, we basically lay the options out, let them decide. Um, when we review documents, we review them to see if they're procedurally filled out correctly. So did they do the caption correctly? Did they fill out the certificate of service? But we can't read someone's motion and say, oh, that sounds really good. Or, oh, you should say blah, blah, blah. So we can't really review for content. Um, we can also provide access to statutes and court rules. But if someone were to say, 
oh, what, what case law applies to my case or, oh, what, what rules should I cite? That would be considered legal advice because it would be like researching for them. It's essentially just providing tool, the tools and the resources and explaining the procedure just on its surface, but not being able to give them strategy or advice or tips or anything like that. Um, and James, as an attorney, you obviously represent people in family law cases, but how do you interact with pro se parties? Pro se parties. Sometimes people who are unrepresented give me a call and I'll do a, a sort of case analysis with them on the phone. Uh, part of that is for them to interview me and discern whether they want to hire me. And the other part of that is to give them some legal advice so they can go on their way and hopefully negotiate the process if it's simple enough on their own. There are people who hire me for advice and drafting assistance only. The Colorado Rules of Professional Responsibility and Civil Procedure both allow us to do it and then give us instructions to do it. I think it's 1.2C that has, says that we can do it in the professional responsibility and then 11B kind of tells us how we're supposed to do it. Uh, and it's a hugely broad area of limited scope representation. And so they may be pro se, right? And I like to use the word self-represented litigant because they may have some legal advice in the background. You know, they may have some cousins who are saying, do this and do that, but that's not really legal advice. That may be something that causes more trouble in the long run. So I recommend people talk to lawyers. Um, I recommend lawyers talk to unrepresented or self-represented litigants and give them honest advice, uh, real direct, kind of hopefully give them a prediction of outcome because the system itself kind of relies on us to do it right and for pro se parties to kind of understand what the process is and not pull any tricks. Being too clever degrades our, our whole system. And you have to be kind of careful in this unrepresented kind of litigant how to help a pro se party because not everybody understands that this isn't every man for himself. This is a system that's designed really consciously and over years and years and years of trial and error to create a healthy society, frankly. I mean, I, I don't want to get too, you know, ivory tower on this thing, but I was a sociology major in college and I like proportions and systems and seeing things turn out better uh, and, and seeing the problems and kind of tamping them down. And I think our judicial system and our legislative system are designed for that kind of process and, you know, giving people advice to have them have the right facts and have the right information to provide to the judge or have the right information to negotiate and discuss with their spouse or or their you know child's other parent um helps us kind of maintain that sanity that safety mm -hmm. for everybody and you know raise healthy kids um hearing your system's view of all of that um do you have any insight on when you're representing a party and the other party is pro se i know that's um, a big issue in the family law context it's hard. And the recommendation to lawyers is uh, keep saying you can't provide them legal advice. They want you to tell them that you're helping them both. And, but you can't. You represent one party's interests and you represent, you know, from an honest perspective, you can give them information, right? You're like a, a, a you know, a coordinator to the extent that you're telling them, look, you need to complete your financial disclosures. And if, if we don't have these parenting classes taken, the court's going to be upset, but I can't tell them what to write in those things. And they probably need some advice. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a complicated thing. It happens all the time. There are people who can afford lawyers that don't want to use us. And I think it's a public image issue. And, and so lawyers have to be real careful with what they're doing with 
unrepresented parties and people who are trying to be too clever because the rest of the world sees that sort of thing as degrading our credibility and frankly that just destroys our profession and so like i i, I think helping people um i mean you look at what is it rule 1.2 d talks about you got to help people in an honest way and and do it do it do it because otherwise we're destroying ourselves so melissa in in your line of work as far as who you see coming in and, and stuff um where does family law rank family law being like divorce and custody cases do you get a lot of those do you get very few of those how common is that we do get a lot it's it's the majority of the people that we see um, about a year or so ago, it was up to about 60%. Um, right now I had Andy check, check the stats for me. Um, we're about at 30, 43% of our customers are family law. And Melissa, why do you think um, being pro se and family law are so connected? I just think there's a lot of family law issues. Like you could almost consider probate family law, depending on what it is, because there's it's just a big it's it's a big category, and I think a lot of people, well, frankly, just they have families, they have kids, a lot of them do, which means they won't really have any money <laughs> unless they're, I mean, wealthy, and so a lot of for a lot of those people, it just it makes sense to be pro se because they just can't. I mean, you can't really afford an attorney unless you really have a lot of money put away. James, do you have any insight as far as why family law and pro se parties tend to go hand in hand? Family disputes traditionally are resolved within the family. And I think that it's a hard transition. It's, it, is, it is a big creek to jump over to get to the point of going to court over this family issue. I can't believe we have to deal with this. And then we go all the way to court and I can't believe we have to pay an attorney for this right? Because this is our family. We should be getting along. This is our, you know, blood, our chosen, you know, co-parent, right? And, and why is this happening? I, it's, I think that it just doesn't feel natural to most folks because most folks don't live in the court system. Most folks' families don't have big criminal issues that they have to go to. I mean, maybe they pay a traffic ticket every once in a while. You can do that remotely. Getting to the point of going to court is traumatic. Getting to the point of having to pay out of pocket with post-tax money is huge. I mean, it, you talk about business disputes, business disputes, people budget for that stuff, right? That's, that's, that's in their contract for services. Well, if we have this dispute, we're going to spend some money on this thing, right? Families don't budget for litigation and they're paying it not in pre-tax money, right? They're paying it out of their pocket. It's, it's, it's harder to afford it as an individual. Frankly, most of these folks didn't do anything really wrong. Like you go and commit a big crime, you're going to expect to spend some time and money and get in trouble for it. But you have little social disputes that you can't work out with somebody else and they get so big that you have to go to court. No one really plans for that. Nobody expected it. Nobody really wants to do that. And the resistance is natural. I, I appreciate their resistance, but frankly, I want to help if I can. And the courts want to help. And you look at the judicial officers, they're bending over backwards to try to help self-represented litigants. But there's only so much a judicial officer can do to guide them. So only so much that a, a Sherlock can do. And then you end up having to call a lawyer and talk about a, you know, a retainer, an hourly rate. It's tough. In, in both your definitions of access to justice, you kind of mentioned different demographics. Um, have you guys seen any trends when people are representing themselves? Are, is it because they're low income? Is it domestic violence survivors? Is it... Um, mental health issues, substance abusers, any particular racial groups? Is there any trends that you see with it or does it just affect everyone equally? 
People who have been involved in criminal court are more likely to hire a lawyer in a family dispute. People that haven't been involved in the court systems, they're not so likely to do it. And so I don't think it's really a socioeconomic issue or a, you know, a domestic violence issue or a drug issue. I think it's just a personality issue and a familiarity with the process issue. A lot of the people I see just don't have the funds, you know, but, but it's skewed because I don't really see people that can't afford them because they wouldn't be coming to my office if they could. Do you know what I mean? Mostly what I see is just people that just can't, just can't afford it and don't know where to start. So jumping off of that, do you ever see folks who can afford an attorney but have other reasons for uh, being pro se? Um, I, I definitely have seen people that will, that will come in and I don't know if they can necessarily afford an attorney, but they make enough money to where their fees and stuff aren't waived. <laughs> I know there are people that just don't want to spend the money because it's expensive. And, you know, especially with family law, you'll have people sit and talk and they're like, well, we could both hire attorneys, but then at the end of this divorce, we'll both be broke or we can try to work it out together, maybe spend the money on mediation or maybe spend the money on some unbundled services. And then at least we can both walk away with something. So some of it could just be personal choice too. Not that attorneys are bad or anything like that, but you know, just trying to save money. <laughs> and what, what affordable is, is going to be different for every person. James, what about you? Affordable, I think is one of those relative terms. I like the way you said it. It's like fair. You know, each person has their concept of what fair is. And a lawyer can help someone understand what the law says might be fair, even if it isn't consistent with their personal set of morals and ideals. Uh, you know, I have talked tons of people get off the phone. Oh, I'll just let the judge decide. And I think maybe they're short-sighted and they, they may not even know how to present their case and they expect the judge to read their mind. And I, I see that a lot. You know, people will walk in and say, well, you saw the petition and I wanted a divorce and can we have everything equal? And I want 50, 50. And you got to have, you know, there's proof and, and testimony and exhibits and documents and, you know, some way for the judge to write an order that is enforceable. And I think people don't grasp that so much oftentimes, no matter what their level of education or financial status is. I don't know. It's, it's an odd thing. Yeah. And jumping off of that note is what are the consequences of, of not having an attorney? Is it like you automatically lose because you don't have an attorney or what, why is this a problem that we're discussing in access to justice? You get a divorce if you want one. I just joke I give to, and I'm sorry to jump in on that one, but this is my favorite thing to say to people. Um, you know, so what's your win loss rate? Well, if you want a divorce, I'm hundred percent because you're going to get a divorce. <laughs> um, you know, it's just how long is it going to take? Enforceable orders, orders that are complete, orders that are based on actual facts, right? Not some sort of clever ruse. Those things are the ones that make, the system work right, and um, lawyers can be helpful. Melissa, what are the biggest challenges um, pro se parties face throughout the process? I think a lot of it is just a misunderstanding of the forms or the procedure. I think that, um, well, one of the things we're working on right now is plain language forms, which I think is incredibly helpful. Um, you know, we constantly get people come up, like if they'll come into the office to work on the paperwork you'll get people coming up constantly like, I don't understand what this means. What are they even asking me here? What are, I don't know what word this is. But through our plain language committee, we've revamped a ton of forms. Um, Jeffco has been piloting this project for almost two years now, I think. And one of the big forms, just as an example, is our, um, our modification of parenting time decision-making forms. We don't get questions on those anymore. Like they just stopped. Um, and the forms are filled out correctly. And so I really think that just 
things like that, just simple things. People like people, people like us don't think about it because we understand the terminology and the, the acronyms and things, but it's like, you know, you'd mentioned earlier, you don't really know about this stuff unless people don't live their lives in family law court. So it's not like they see these forms every day and stuff like we do. So plain language is a big deal. And also the access to file stuff. There are people that live, you know, out in Park County or wherever, and they can't drive two and a half hours to come file their paperwork um, because they can't, you know, because we don't accept e-filing. So in November, Jefferson County is doing, is getting e-filing for pro se parties. So it's going to be a huge change. But in summation, I think the biggest two challenges would be just not being able to understand the forms, like the language and the, the lingo and um, not having the best access to getting there filed. James, what do you see as the biggest challenges for pro se parties? I think she hit it on the head. I, uh, understanding the process and setting reasonable expectations for outcome. So with the biggest challenge in mind, what's the one piece of advice that you would want every pro se party to know? Um, if you could speak to every pro se party, if everyone was listening to it or if the attorney's listening to it or meeting with a pro se party, what's a good piece of advice to tell them um, to represent themselves? That you're trying to find a solution that's workable for you and the children and a set of instructions. You need a set of instructions that you understand and that you can live by because the problem is the conflict. The outcome, most people can make it through. We have a really spectacular United States-like system of helping people who need help. If you look around and you're like, oh, God, how can we make this better? But as compared to you know the, the world in general, I think that we really do a good job of helping the needy. I mean, it's always better to push it up. But when there's problems and conflict persists and people don't understand the set of instructions they're supposed to live by or refuse to, it's worse than a slightly uncomfortable outcome to the extent that we can give people a set of understanding of a set of rules that they understand and can live by their set of instructions. We're all better. On that note, uh, I see a lot of the attorneys that um, volunteer through MBL give advice when they're talking about mediation as well, where it's you and, and the other side are making this decision. You're not going before a judge who's doing their best, but they only know you for the two-hour hearing, the four-hour hearing that you have. Um, if, if you don't think that you're going to win everything, you're more likely to successfully mediate before you get to those permanent order hearings. So, uh, Melissa, do you have any uh, nuggets of a piece of advice that you'd like every pro se party to know? Yes. Um, I think the biggest one for me would be to um, use the resources that are around. Come to the self-help center. Every county has one read the instructions, look at your paperwork, sit down and take the time to go through your stuff. Obviously you are going to be your own best advocate, you know, unless you have an attorney, right? So you have to advocate for yourself, which means you have to take the time and the effort. And I get that people have families and stuff going on. So you just, you're going to have to carve out that time and make yourself a priority. You know, we'll come in, people will come in and we'll explain things 15 times. So they're just not paying attention. And really it's, um, you've got all the tools you have in your hands. One of the things I forgot to mention earlier, I don't know if I was just nervous or what, but one of the other things that the self-help clinic uh, centers offer our clinics, we have 
a family law one where an attorney comes in and does it's like a it's on webex but it's like a zoom mini, meeting same thing where they will teach you the process from start to finish and how to file a divorce case um we have several ask an attorney clinics where you can just chat with an attorney for free for 15 minutes um we have a lot of that stuff available uh we have resource lists we have attorney lists not that we make up ourselves but we we distribute the attorney list where attorneys volunteer to put themselves on a list where they can offer discounted or unbundled services and we distribute that um, we have tons of pamphlets that we distribute from all kinds of places so bottom line is make yourself the priority read the instructions use those resources kind of dive in and you just got to do it but it'll it'll help you in the long run for sure you you mentioned you have these clinics and things like that but are there other resources um for people going through a divorce or custody case without an attorney. Um, most of our listeners are attorneys, but they might have a consultation and might want to guide them if they're not gonna hire them to some additional resources. Obviously the Sherlock office is a huge resource, but I don't know if you have additional resources that you might want to make sure people are aware of. Well, the big one that we have been pushing recently is if there are any sort of domestic violence or anything like that, we go to porch light. We always we also refer a lot of people to Colorado Legal Services, um, the Colorado Bar Association website if they're trying to find an attorney. Also, ColoradoLegalHelpCenter.us is a good one that we've got where you kind of go through and just answer questions, like yes or no question type thing. So it will help you narrow down attorneys that you're looking for. Justice and Mercy Legal Aid Center. We actually distribute what's called it says resource list on the top of it. It's full of stuff. Um, we'll also refer people to the library if they need assistance, like if they can't print stuff off at home, you know, the, the librarians are trained on the forms and everything. So kind of help people get to the forms on the website. Um, we give out mediation information. People are looking for municipal court information. If they, like they come to us thinking it's, you know, we're the right court, but we're not, we've got all that information for them. Just a whole bunch of stuff, really. All right, James, we promised we would end on a happy note. So can you share a recent success story with us? I like it when I can uh, give people advice that ends up being consistent with their outcome. And that happens every once in a while. And I don't really feel super comfortable providing a, a story of success because I hadn't gotten any real authority from people to do that. And someone might say, well, that's my story. And I don't want to share it. Like we have an obligation to be confidential. But like I think that the successes that I personally feel are the ones where I say, this is what I need to express. Can you give me information and, and documentation and anecdotes and patterns of behavior? And people follow through with it and they give me a journal and they give me a history and then I can put that together with them and whether they're presenting it or I'm presenting it, we're showing the judge what they need. And then the outcome that I said that might happen if we did that actually does happen. And, <laughs> and that's, that's the success story. Everybody kind of collaborates on information where the law applied to their information, right? then we get this outcome that's equitable and healthy and that the people can understand and manage and follow through with, and they never have to come back to see me again. That's great. Melissa, what about you? Mine is kind of in that same vein, um, not really a specific person or anything, but my my favorite success story is that couple that kind of has a hard time getting along, but, and they can't really quite figure out their forms. And instead of 
bickering or whatever, they come in together, they take the time, they sit down, they work with, with us on what forms they need to do and how, what they need to fix and all that stuff. And they spend, they listen to us and spend that time and they get through it successfully because they've taken the time to sit down and figure out what they want, you know, in, in their co-parenting situation or whatever it is, rather than, you know, fighting it, going through to the end and having the judge decide from what I understand, if the judge has to decide, both parties aren't happy with the outcome. So, you know, just that couple that can get through it, get their stuff taken care of and figured out and, and get through their divorce peacefully is a huge success story in my opinion. Melissa, would you want to talk about, um, I know this is like family law oriented, but just like give us some information about all the types of cases that you guys can help with. Yeah, we, um, us Sherlock's, um, we really are able to help with everything. Um, pretty much everything. So we can help people with probate stuff. Uh, we help with a sliver of criminal, but things like deregistering as a sex offender or terminating from probation earlier, just some general in the beginning criminal stuff, all civil law, small claims, district court, civil county, civil. Um, so if somebody wants to sue their neighbor, get a restraining order, you know, any of that stuff, adoptions, we can help people with like the adoption packet in the beginning and we can provide that to them. And then if we don't know, we'll try to help them at least point them in the right direction to get them to where they need to go. So we don't send somebody away with, Oh, I can't help you. Like if someone comes in, no matter what it is, they're going to leave with some piece of information or some, some resource or something. And then the other thing, um, James, I happen to know you are very knowledgeable about unbundled. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, I know that you mentioned it, one of your earlier answers. Unbundled. Okay. So uh, old term bundle of sticks, right? I think it had something to do with real estate, but the, the idea is that there are tasks that lawyers do that you can separate out and just ask them to do that one task, like advice and drafting assistance. That's the one I'm okay with. There are people who actually will do it and say, look, I'm going to go in on this contempt matter, but I don't want to get on the child support matter. And so they can enter a limited scope appearance and do a notice of withdrawal when they're out of the contempt matter and not have to deal with the child support matter. It just gets complicated for me. And I like, I applaud the attorneys that will do it. I just like, I prefer personally not to do it. Um, I think it's great though. Like if you can, you know, handle that and the opposing counsel or opposing party can work on that kind of partition uh, there are people who will sign up just for the purpose of mediation and help the party through mediation. Um, I think that becomes complicated because it's hard to swoop in, not knowing all the facts and say, hey, here's a little sworn financial statement I've just looked at it, and I'm going to do this mediation with you. And I really don't know the personalities. And so it's harder to do active you know, communication with third parties, in my perspective, although it's totally allowed. And I think it does help. Any amount of help that someone is willing to accept and the lawyer is willing to provide is better than nothing. And I think the judicial officers appreciate it and the system feeds it. On that note, I, I know a lot of um, the people that I help through my program um, have had an attorney but can no longer afford them. So they essentially get unbundled services, help through mediation, and then they can't afford them after mediation anyway. So yeah, it's kind of a backwards. It is totally fine. A lot of times people hire me for unbundled and then upgrade later on when they realize it's more than they can handle. And there is that version of, gosh, I can't afford this attorney on this case because it's banging me over the head and I need to pay my rent. So why don't I just downgrade and pay a lesser retainer, you know, 
access fewer services now that I'm kind of on a roll. And that that's nice too. Like it can happen in so many different ways. And it really is just a matter of a contract between an attorney and a client, what you can do within the rules. Well, thank you guys so much. I think y'all are wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. I think this was really healthy and I hope helpful folks. All right. Thank bye you. everyone. Bye. So we at Survey to ATJ would like to thank all the local ATJ committees for providing the information and for all that they're important work that they're doing for pro bono um, week around the state. We'd also like to thank Melissa Walter and James Gartz who joined us for our interview section. And also thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to check out other CBA podcasts, including the Modern Law Revolution, Our Voices, and Getting Legal With It. If you have an ATJ subject you would like us to cover on the show, please feel free to email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. I'm Anthony Pereira. Stay healthy and be good to each other out there. And I'm Mia Kotnick. Keep climbing, stay curious, and come volunteer with us.